1: Amongst all of the issues that are troubling Americans today, and it's a laundry list, terrorism, the economy, unemployment, housing, education, you know what I find interesting? That the number one reported concern amongst residents of the state of New Hampshire is substance abuse isn't that interesting? Substance abuse, their number one concern, apparently rampant taking place uh, particularly amongst kids and of course when we talk about abuse and addictive behavior uh, it, it comes in a very broad variety of forms. If I talk to you about addiction, I think a lot of our minds immediately have a picture in our mind of either the hobo on the street that has the alcohol addiction problem or maybe the individual that's that's dealing with drugs and has a drug addiction problem. But growing percentages of Americans, and it addition to dealing with sort of the traditional addiction so to speak have a variety of other addictions and it can be as broad as not just illegal drug addiction but legal or prescription drug addiction then you move into other categories you think about it from a biblical perspective there are people that are addicted to food people that can be addicted to spending gambling things of that sort As we talk about the broad level of addiction and addictive behavior in America today, and by the way, 30% of Americans, one out of three of us, struggles with a form of addiction of one sort or another, you would think perhaps the best place for these people to go would be the church. But the church could help them address their addictive behavior. I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible talk about all these topics? Well, it certainly does. And yet, sadly, the church seems to be ill-equipped. It, it almost acts as if we're sort of out of sorts on this topic. And so we feel as if, well, if you come to us with an addictive behavior, we'd immediately need to give you a referral to a uh, uh, narcotics anonymous, something of that sort. But Could we change the face of addiction if we changed our attitudes about what addiction is within the church? To get some insights now, Jonathan Benz joins us. Jonathan is a clinician. He is a certified professional who serves the recovery community. He is the author of a new book called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction. Jonathan, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Thank you for having me, Craig. What about this observation? From your perspective, is that a fairly legitimate claim to say that largely the church seems to be kind of awkward at dealing with this topic?
3: I think your comments are spot on, and that's certainly my experience. Uh, Having uh, been blessed enough to to be to have been raised in a home and a congregation that was remarkably recovery friendly, when I started going out on my own and doing uh, both clinical work and work in the church, discovering that. While for decades, uh, churches have allowed AA and NA meetings to take place in basements and fellowship halls, Most of those people who go to those meetings uh, would not grace the doors of the church for any form of worship or or participation in Christian community. And I think that's largely due to the shame and the stigma that oftentimes addiction carries in the church world.
1: But that's odd, because as I delineated, you know, when we think of addiction, let's let's apply the the more broad definition to it than what seems to be kind of the the, the narrow traditional approach. Most people, if you say addiction and, and do a word association, game will you know say alcohol drugs things of that sort and yet as we know both from a scriptural standpoint as well as a clinical standpoint that there can be all kinds of other dangerous addictive behaviors I mean there there are uh, ministries now that are dedicated to do nothing but helping people for example that struggle with uh, sexual addictions uh, or gambling addiction so it seemed to me that that given the broad nature of this behavior and the fact that <laughs> the scripture has an awful lot to say about all of them that if there's any place where where we ought to feel welcome. If an an addict ought to feel welcome, it ought to be within within the church.
3: Well, and one with hope. Uh, You know, it's interesting that the American Society of Addiction Medicine defines addiction as a chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and circuitry. And when the medical community defines addiction, drugs, alcohol, gambling, those things are not mentioned. Those are but symptoms of something else that's going on. So we know that there's something that's happening physiologically in the brain of the individual and I think sometimes that's the part that uh, we in the church community uh, don't get or don't fully understand. Uh, We think that addiction is something that can be prayed away. And while certainly uh, I believe prayer helps in some form of prayer and meditation, we know through science now definitely helps the brain heal, uh, it takes more than just prayer and Bible study for a person to heal and recover. Uh, it takes some form of medical treatment as well.
1: To a certain degree, then, are some of those behaviors, uh, let's take alcohol. and we know certainly there's a physiological aspect to that addictive behavior, drugs too. Uh, but, but to a great degree, is that oftentimes, then, as I think you're suggesting, Jonathan, symptomatic of something deeper going on? Uh,
3: oftentimes, uh, addiction experts will say drugs and alcohol are but a symptom. Or uh, sexual compulsivity is a symptom of something deeper going on. Now, we we do know in the case of alcoholism, science tells us that there's a genetic marker for alcoholism. And, you know, we don't quite know if there's a genetic marker for sex addiction yet. Maybe we'll find at some point that there is. But uh, sometimes it's a chicken or egg uh, discussion, you know, which came first. And I often say it doesn't matter whether uh, something of trauma happened that got the person into addiction or they had a genetic marker that led them into addiction, we we got to treat it. And when we want to treat more than just the symptoms, we want to treat the deeper issues of the psyche or within the Christian context, we would say the soul or the spirit.
1: Now, the church, of course, would typically look at many of these on that laundry list that we mentioned a moment ago and say that, well, the answer, of course, is Christ. And we can help an individual by leading he or she to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And once they start attending church, going to Bible study things of this sort that uh, most naturally then that that life-changing experience that encounter with Christ should then address the underlying issues regarding their addiction and so once they've been able to then um, through a process of prayer and counseling things of this sort overcome that addiction that they should be done. in other words, there should be no need for ongoing uh, recovery workshops or things of this sort. we oftentimes even hear something well people you know that once they get through their addictive behavior then they get addicted to recovery is there something wrong with that approach
3: well I, I think if we take that approach then we should do the same uh with other diseases with other disease states we certainly would never tell the cancer patient to stop her chemotherapy or we would never tell a uh, diabetic to to stop uh his insulin or watching his sugar levels uh we know that there are certain disease states that are chronic and apart from some kind of miraculous uh, touch or, or miracle of science, the person will continue to have to treat that for the rest of their life. Uh, so, uh, you know, some people, uh, they struggle and they say, well, it's a sin to be an alcoholic. Well, if that's the case, then perhaps it's a sin to be a diabetic. Uh, you know, we don't stigmatize people who suffer from other disease states that are often characterized by relapse. Um, yet with addiction, we, it is one of the most undertreated Uh, issues in our country and one of the most deadly and I I think the beauty of the church uh, when the church wakes up to the realization that yes we hold a lot of answers for spiritual healing for psychological healing when we practice that with good medicine that a person can really uh, increase their chances of finding a life that is happy joyous and free as the book says uh, I think when we, when we really grab hold of that, we can begin to see greater transformation in people's lives in our congregations and also create an atmosphere where it's easier for people to talk about these issues that maybe they would be ashamed to even
1: confess. Well, and Maybe then, too, the approach needs to be with the understanding that an individual that is struggling with an addiction, while we kind of traditionally think it as an individual who is weak, who doesn't have the the kind of um, will or ability uh, 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 Ability with them to, to push themselves back from the table, the drug, the alcohol, whatever, but rather to recognize that in our fallen condition, we are vulnerable to sin. And it is a day-to-day struggle. I mean, if Paul had to struggle daily to die to the flesh... And I, I think Paul, both in terms of, of his encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and the role that he played in the in the early church, uh, probably a little a little closer, a little deeper understanding uh, of these principles than just the average Christian out on the street who just casually reads Paul's writings. Uh, that if we acknowledge the fact that it's a day to day struggle, and that in and of ourselves we are powerless, but through Christ we can overcome this, and, and recognize the fact that it's not necessarily just somebody who's got a weak character. But, but rather it's part of the daily struggle to the flesh, maybe then this sort of stigma that's attached to addictive behavior by the church would be less so, and as a result, people would be more willing to find the kind of help they need within both Scripture and the church.
3: I, I would concur, and you know, I would go on to say, uh, I'm going to say what I'm not saying. and What I'm not saying is that there are not uh, what we would call simple consequences of addiction. So if, if the mother... Uh, you know, needs a, a handle of vodka because she's alcoholic, and she drives to the liquor store, and she leaves her child in the hot car in the car seat, uh, and turns the car off uh, to go in to get her alcohol, and and the child dies. Is that a sin? Definitely, there are what we would call within the Christian context sinful consequences, or definitely harmful behaviors, destructive behavioral patterns. Uh, But but I think we have to reframe the conversation, as you're saying, to say, yes, we know that there are these behaviors, there are patterns of behaviors, and that really uh, there are principles, spiritual principles in the scriptures that can help you break free from those destructive behavioral patterns that actually propagate the addictive cycle in your
1: life. Jonathan Benz is with us tonight. We're talking about the recovery-minded church, loving and ministering to people with addiction. We'll take a brief time out to come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues.
2: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: All right, we are back with a pretty tight schedule tonight, but we'll see if we can't uh, jump a caller here or two for Jonathan Benz. His new book is called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction. Newly released, by the way, by InterVarsity Press. You can get it at bookstores around the Bay Area, of course, through uh, TheRecoveryPlace.com. Jonathan, let's talk some specifics. When we talk about ways in which the church can do a better job, aside from simply saying, let's open up the church basement and allow AA to hold meetings there, what, from your perspective, do you think the body of Christ can be doing that will create the kind of environment that will allow addicts to feel welcome, number one, inside the church, and then what kind of tools do we need to be equipped with in order to really adequately and, and, and appropriately minister to them?
3: Uh, I think education is a great place to start. Uh, if, if there are... Uh for example, lay leaders in the congregation who have uh, this kind of passion or who have a particular compassion for people struggling with some kind of addiction. Uh, just getting good information uh, and changing the tenor of the conversation within the spiritual community helps. Um, I think being clear that in, in saying and intentional in our message and saying, hey, we want you here, we don't have all the answers. But we're going to help you find the answers that you need. And we're going to journey with you and uh, be on this journey with you to find what you're looking for. And if we can't find it here, we're going to help you find it somewhere. Uh, I think that's what a lot of people are looking for uh, who are struggling with addiction. They don't know where to go. And so there are even practical things that congregations can do. One of the most practical things I say is have a list in your foyer or in your lobby of your church that is a list of uh, community resources. Not just numbers for the the AA intergroup, but also therapists that you work with or believe in, or treatment centers, or different options, so that people can know. That they don't have to do this on their own, Uh, and uh, oftentimes the best thing we can do is point them in the right direction if we don't have the
1: answer. And, of course, the irony is, based on just some of the the broad definitions that you've shared with us tonight, I think uh, many pastors would maybe uh, be surprised to find out that many of these so-called addicts are sitting in the church pews right now. Now, they, this may not be the guy that has, you know, the mainline heroin addiction or is, is you know, diving into a bottle of vodka every night, perhaps not at the extremes. But there's all kinds of, of signs of addictive behavior uh, that can have negative consequences on uh, your certainly your spiritual health, your relationships with your spouse, your children, etc. So it would seem to me when you talk about 30 percent of Americans that deal with one degree of addiction or another, that a good percentage of them are already in the pews. And this kind of addictive behavior is going unaddressed.
3: But, you know, what, what about the woman who can't go to sleep at night without uh, her two milligram uh, Xanax, which on the streets is called a Xanibar? Uh, but if you get it from the uh, pharmacist, it's called a two milligram tablet of Xanax. Or the man who has to take his oxycodone uh, to get to work and has to take it throughout the day because of his car wreck and he can't function without the painkillers. Uh, you know, these are very uh, powerful narcotics that our doctors prescribe, and oftentimes we have people sitting in our pews who have become dependent on these uh, medications, these narcotic medications, and can't get off and don't know where to turn.
1: Is part of the, the first step here to start destigmatizing a lot of this? Because you say addiction, and that, and that sounds like somebody has just got this uh, you know, deep, dark, evil, ugly secret, and yet, you know, when we start to look at some of these definitions, we begin to realize that this is more widespread and more common than we realize.
3: Uh, I think one of the places the church can start is to uh, really have a, an honest discussion about the difference between guilt and shame. And we like to say, you know, guilt, guilt is when I feel bad about what I did. But shame is when I feel bad about who I am. Now, if we believe what St. Paul wrote, as you said, that we are new creations in Christ, we are not bad. We are, we are good people who are struggling sometimes with some bad things. And so separating identity from behavior is very helpful in destigmatizing addiction so saying to the person you know you might even want to say you're a person with addiction i work with people who they can't handle that label of addict because it's too self-defeating for them other people are okay with it uh you know say well you're a person with alcoholism you're a person whose drinking has taken over separating the behavior from actually who the person is uh is what the church can help with in terms of the spiritual healing process
1: Sometimes, of course, the big challenge here is just coming to grips with the face of who we really are. You know, there's that mask that I think we not only put on in, in, in front of others, but sometimes even that, that mask is apparent in the mirror, isn't it? We kind of fool ourselves.
3: Well, uh, we, we like denial, and I think it's human nature. Um, I think it's the ego. I think it's the sin nature of the flesh or whatever you want to call it. We like to think that uh, we're, we're doing okay, and sometimes it's hard to take an honest look in the mirror to say, uh, to really give an honest inventory of of how how I really am doing.
1: Let's slip a caller or two here uh, real quick before the end of our conversation. We're going to jump over to Oakland and say good evening to Eleanor. Eleanor, come on in with your comment or question for Jonathan Benz.
4: Hi good evening gentlemen and first i'd like to say i really am thankful that you're having this conversation um i just have a comment and maybe a little bit of a question my comment is that several years ago i started a uh, substance abuse a recovery ministry in my church. But first before we actually got the group started, uh we actually partnered with uh our local mental health association and we actually got uh professionals to come in and give us an overview about um, the pharmacology of addiction as well as the sociology of addiction. Once we got that information, I was able to talk with my pastor, get him on board with it, and actually um, the members of our recovery group came basically right out of our congregation as we began to do it more and more and months passed by we were able to even invite some of the family members of people who were uh, in recovery and we also use Bible and we also use prayer and and um, just a number of different things so uh, how do you think about uh, churches partnering with other churches and partnering with other um, uh, community uh, mental health associations
1: so- Some really good questions, and it sounds like you're doing some really good work there too, Jonathan. What do you think,
3: Eleanor? I love it. Yes, yes, and yes. That that was a great approach. Uh, Well done in partnering and bringing in good information to the congregation, and also working with your pastor. You know, oftentimes we don't deal with things in our churches until there's a felt need. So when there's a crisis, we didn't respond, Uh, and so including the leadership and saying, "Hey." Uh, you know, we're not a, a silo here. We're not a reservoir. We're a river. And uh, we're going to allow the information and the healing to flow. And sometimes we got to partner with other people to provide optimal healing for our parishioners.
1: And, you know, there's so many organizations out there that you can partner with that you don't have to sort of do all the heavy lifting and, you know, reinvent the wheel, so to speak. More and more churches, for example, are, are discovering uh, the ministry of Celebrate Recovery. Uh, And and that has been exploding, perhaps not as fast as we'd love to see, but that's been exploding across the country. So this idea of whether you're partnering with another congregation or or taking advantage of some of the resources, as uh, Eleanor just mentioned, that that already exist to say, hey, what can we do to be more effective in our local ministry? And I love the fact that they recognize, gee, we've got some folks right here in our congregation that are already struggling. Mm
4: Thank you.
1: We appreciate the call tonight, Eleanor. Uh, Jonathan, I know we've just kind of scratched the surface here this evening, but for, for others out there that are eavesdropping on the conversation, heard what you've had to share, heard what the caller just had to share. Where would you recommend they take some, some important first steps?
3: Well, I think we have to ask. Now, I always uh, tell people, be careful who you tell your story to. Not everyone has earned the right to hear your story. So when you go for help, make sure that you're going to someone who you are somewhat confident that they can help point you in the right direction if they don't have the answers themselves. So hopefully your pastor or an elder in the congregation or a lay leader or a therapist or someone in the community, uh, you know, the first you have to ask. Uh, and that, that's what we all have to do. When we're recognizing that we have a problem, we have to ask for help. If we don't ask for help, we'll never uh, get the help that we need, that we so desperately need.
1: And, of course, in terms of resources, I mentioned Celebrate Recovery. And also a copy of Jonathan's new book might be very helpful to you, too. It's called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction. Newly published by InterVarsity. You can get it on uh, the web, of course, the usual suspects, Amazon.com, local uh, bookstores, and recoveryplace.com. That's recoveryplace.com. And our thanks to Jonathan Benz for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. America over the last two generations now, some 50 years, experts argue, has slowly and methodically been killing itself. The problem is called obesity. From the days when we ate a healthy and wholesome diet, we have come to live to gorge ourselves at the buffet table. Assuming since everything there technically is edible and tastes so good, it thus should be eaten. We have abandoned healthy eating and embraced a new, more appealing cookbook of chemically and genetically modified foods that last longer, taste better, and thus we ate more food less quality filled with empty calories or all the wrong calories that while may taste good are actually bad for us and ultimately killing us medical experts warn if we don't change our diet and eating pattern soon america will wind up one big fat lazy useless physically bankrupt nation Now let's look at another similarly dangerous pattern of the last two generations. While the first is slowly bringing about our physical destruction, the second, more dangerous than the first, is bringing about our spiritual destruction. The problem is called sin and counterfeit doctrine. From the days when we read the Word, attended biblically sound churches, and embraced true discipleship, we have come to live to gorge ourselves at the buffet table of false teaching, assuming if it makes us feel good about ourselves, it must be true. We have abandoned sound doctrine and healthy discipleship and embraced a new, more appealing Bible of social gospel, word of faith, emergent church theology. We gorge ourselves on false teaching filled with empty promises and all the wrong doctrines that, while well, may make us feel good, are actually bad for the church, and are ultimately spiritually killing us. And everyone who profits from marketing of this false teaching is actually an antichrist who makes out like a bandit selling nonsense and manipulated doctrine, all designed to give us an easy way out of God's design for salvation and sanctification. And the cycle of false teaching, an unhealthy church begs for a reawakening once again. And sound biblical experts warn, if we don't change our theology and belief patterns soon, the church in America will wind up as one inept, lazy, useless, spiritually bankrupt institution. Joining me now in studio is author and theologian James Darnell. 57% of evangelical church attendees say they believe many religions can lead to eternal life. Of course, that is directly at odds with the mandate in John fourteen six that Christ says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. Correct. No one comes to God but through me." Mm-hmm. Your book, "Saving the Saved," addresses what's happening in America's churches today. How do you respond to
5: this shocking biblical disconnect? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on, and I really enjoy our conversations together. But the disconnect that you're talking about is is a is is an effort. On the church, and especially church leadership, and by that I'm talking about professional clergy and whatever, that have come to the place to believe that, that they have an answer, that they have a, a way to approach the issues and the concerns that people are having today. And that means... Uh, they're going to have to share an idea that is different, that's a little fresher, uh, that comes at them uh, with a little bit of radicalness. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of looking at the gospel and the words and the teachings of the scripture in a way that says to people, you know what, uh, maybe we have something to offer here. Maybe, maybe what God expects us to do is take the bull by the horns here and um, work with this culture. Find a way to make things um, exciting for people to uh, become involved in the life of the church. M- maybe we need to make some compromise. Uh, nothing that would really hurt us doctrinally, but, uh, and we don't know where that may go, but, but well, let's start out with something a little bit different. So what they end up doing, and that's what the book talks about, is that they end up in this battle of supremacy that has gone on for centuries between man's kingdom and what he believes is good and God's kingdom that is already there and already underway and already have been planned and moving forward. And now what we have is we have this conflict between these two kingdoms uh, man's kingdom and God's kingdom and saving the save what it does it, in four chapters at the very beginning uh, the, the book is divided into into uh, three parts and that very first part addresses this entire issue and what it says is basically this in four chapters it outlines for people a way to understand what's happening to the church in America and it under and we understand it from the perspective of a secular type of, uh, of thinking. Uh, that's going on that says, look, um, we have to, we have to become involved with the secular community, with the seekers, with the on church folks. We have to bring them into our church. And you and I have had a show before, uh, talking about these very issues with numbers as to what's happening across the country and people leaving the church. And, and what this has resulted in is the agenda of the church is now being, uh, set and the mission of the church is now being described based on people who are not necessarily committed to Christ. There are two big buzzwords we
1: hear these days. We hear much about tolerance. We hear a lot about inclusiveness. And yet, it seems to be at odds. You spoke about the, this this sense of being at odds with two major opposing worldviews or two kingdoms. God's kingdom with a capital K and man's kingdom with a small k. At odds here too must be on one hand tolerance and inclusiveness and on the other extreme as we see outlined in scripture very exclusiveness within the claims of Christ and Christianity. I mean for example the individual that approaches this from a very tolerant standpoint bearing out this 57% of evangelical Christians who say well if God is really a loving God then surely he will allow everybody who wants to seek him to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And yet, Christ is very exclusive in saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Narrow is the gate. So we really see at odds here, on one hand, inclusiveness and tolerance, Mm -hmm. and the other, the exclusiveness that is at the core of God's plan for salvation. Absolutely.
5: And it is exclusive. And the reason it's exclusive is because you have to make a choice as to how you're going to approach Ministry. You cannot approach ministry with a Bible on the back burner. If you decide to do that, what that does is exactly what it describes in the second part of this book, which is it describes the subtle strategic persecution that is happening to Christians in this country who are unaware... Of what you just said, and they're they're not clear about what is really happening and how we're becoming a a godless nation when we have all these churches on every street corner and 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 people are talking constantly. But here we have a public school system that has been infiltrated with these secular worldviews. We have the family that's being topsy-turvy upside down because uh, uh, everybody's concerned about what you can say and what you can't say to a child and how you bring them up. We have the problems with science. Here's a perfect example. Uh, We have a, a Christian community of scientists now that feel that they need to rewrite the first two chapters of the bible in genesis 1 and 2 because they need to include because they're convinced that, that God just didn't happen to mention evolution, but he used it in, in putting together the universe. And so they're going to help him out a little bit and put in there this inclusive idea that man has designed and a theory that man has developed, and they're going to make this part of the Holy Word of God. Does this become sort of a theological
1: Trojan horse? And I ask that question because there is a sense that if we stay to the exclusivity of the Scripture in terms of the origin of man... God's plan for salvation. There's that sense that, well, gee, when we preach it in such a narrow fashion, church attendance is cut in half. But if we take more of an inclusive approach to all of this, we allow then larger people to be exposed to the message because it's more user-friendly. It would almost appear as if it's a bit of a theological Trojan horse, and that what we're really experiencing here is we've seen this paradigm shift with it, as you point out, many institutions, be it the church itself, public education, uh, the adoption of the church of the culture so that now the culture influences the church and as opposed to vice versa, Mm -hmm. that a lot of this through seduction and subterfuge
5: has come about. Absolutely. You hit the nail right in the head. That's exactly what's going on. And what has happened is pastors somehow feel that if they don't get on this bandwagon, they're going to be left out or they're going to be behind. And so they feel it's important that they learn how to do something new and fresh and bring something different to the church. Are we focus more on numerical
1: results then as opposed to spiritual results? Because if the pastor down the street is reporting that their church attendance Sunday morning has doubled since they've become a, an emergent church and have become more seeker-sensitive, uh-huh. if that's the yardstick, is this part of the problem of what pastors are looking at? Absolutely.
5: It, it's a major part of the yardstick. And matter of fact, if you go to the conference that the pastors are going to to learn how to do leadership, with their church, they're told that this is the only yardstick, that basically to reach this new culture, this secularized culture, what you have to do is be inclusive. And not only that, but you have to be, in a sense, politically correct about some things. And you have to allow them to be who they need to be so they feel comfortable in the presence of God. James Darnell with us today in studio. A look at
1: Saving the Saved, how the church's greatest omission led to a post-Christian America. We'll take a brief time out come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues.
2: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with James Darnell. We're talking about a new book called Saving the Saved, How the Church's Greatest Omission Led to a Post-Christian America. You made a reference to leadership just before the break. And I'm curious, with all this focus that we see, and we've got many of these megachurch conferences that take place, people are concerned about how can they become more effective. They want to be purpose-driven. They want to be seeker-sensitive things of this sort. But it would seem that we're skipping over one important mandate, and that is that I see nowhere in Scripture where Christ says, go out and develop leaders. He does say to make disciples. Are we getting the cart before the horse here? Are we building a house of cards on a foundation that is non-existent because you have a church that is focused on leadership and how to become more effective at attracting the unchurched when Christ at the core is calling us to build disciples and reach
5: the lost? Shepherding the flock is no longer important. What's important is how many people are getting hold of the message, and are we expressing the new definition of extended love to everybody, no matter who they are, what they have done, what they are doing? Are what they might
1: do in the future. i extrapolate on that because it would seem to me if you're no longer shepherding the flock, that means the flock is free to go and eat at any pasture they wish, whether or not the grass is healthy for them or
5: poisonous. Absolutely. And what we have here now in the church is an apostasy of the pastorate uh, it's, it, it has come out of this, this secular notion of a pluralistic worldview that seems to be the global way of thinking. And we have set aside the Judeo-Christian worldview. And the Judeo-Christian worldview no longer is considered the foundation upon which Christ has built his church. It's now built upon the idea of unity. The best man has to bring to the table. And what is it that we know about God? And here's the interesting thing. God is not against knowledge. He wants us to see knowledge. There's plenty of things in Proverbs and everything else that tells us about the importance of knowledge. But with that comes wisdom. And what we're doing now is we're teaching the church somehow that what they can do if they can just um, experience God in their own way that the knowledge isn't quite as important. So therefore, you know, we, t- we take the authority of the scriptures and we kind of set that in the back burner. And we say, let's kind of experience God together. So what we do now is we, at the leadership conference, we come home with these ideas. Not only do I have a dream, not only do I think we should wonder and be into nature, but I also believe that we should use our imagination in interpreting the scriptures. Just think what it would be like. Can you imagine what it would be like for you if, if you designed the scriptures, if you taught the scriptures, if you learned the scriptures, the way it would be helpful to you, and ha- therefore you could you could be live any lifestyle you want to live, and still call yourself a Christian. And this is exactly what's happening. So we're repackaging the scripture to make it
1: more palatable. We repackage the truth to make it more user-friendly. And yet, isn't that Unitarian approach essentially denying the truth of the scripture? Because suddenly now, with the Unitarian approach, that means that, well, we can all be right. And yes, there are many roads to heaven. And after all, wouldn't a loving God want to embrace anybody who is simply sincere about their approach? And if you talk about the exclusivity of the claims of Christ, isn't that intolerant? Doesn't that become suddenly uh, uh, language that is um, almost warlike to somebody else who doesn't believe the way we believe, doesn't interpret scripture the way we interpret scripture? Mm
5: -hmm. And what it does is also it causes great division among the church and great confusion among the people who call themselves Christians and attend churches. The, the, The concern that I have here, and this is what uh, Saving the save is all about. People ought to get this book and, and read these details because I've, I've gone to great length as a labor of love to try to lay this out in a logical way so that people can understand that what's happening here is they have everything they need. God has given them Everything When they have come to Christ, not only are they saved, not only do they have eternal life, not only uh, will they be raised in, uh, from the dead, and, and all those wonderful things, but along with that is this whole process of sanctification, and the Holy Spirit living in their life. And it's not about telling your story. It's not about saying, "Oh well, this happened to me uh, 15 years ago, and, 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 and you know I've come through these problems and these problems and these problems. here's when your story starts. When you're redeemed. That's when the story starts. And so when you're redeemed, Christ has placed within you. Listen to Paul. He says, this is in Second Corinthians, he, he, he talks about, now it is God who makes us who we are and stands firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. For what reason? To guarantee the outcome. To guarantee what's going to come. Now the interesting thing about that is, what is it that's in there that we are not shepherding, that we are not getting out, that we are not discipling? And the church refuses to talk about that, and here's what's in there. What's in there is what has happened to your heart, your regeneration, how you've received through the imputed love of Christ His righteousness, how you have new character in your life, and what that character and blessing means taught by Jesus. How you become holy, how you practice holiness in your daily life, how you practice your communication now with your neighbor, how you love your neighbor, the transformation of your mind, and all the gifts that God has given you. These are all lying subtle inside uh, and, and, sub, uh, and subservient to the love that we want to have for Christ. And and they're no longer brought to the forefront because man has a better idea. So is there a fundamental theological
1: paradigm shift here where on one side we have the business of making disciples, preaching Christ crucified, his shed blood for the remission of sin, and on the other side we have the marketing of Christianity, which well when you start to talk about this sin and offending God and God requiring shed blood for the remission of sin, Yeah, that's kind of inconvenient from a marketing standpoint that really doesn't go with the approach that's dictated by Madison Avenue. So Mm -hmm. let's clean a lot of that stuff up and instead let's focus on how God can make you healthy and wealthy Mm -hmm. or how you can feel better about yourself and be the popular person on the block because of the power of positive thinking.
5: Absolutely. And that's what's going on. You've hit it again on head. That's exactly where the church is going. The church has decided that if we can experience and imagine the scripture, if you can tell your story, and you can sit in small groups and share with psychological and sociological principles how you feel and what you're experiencing in your religious life and in your spiritual growth, that that's all you need to be able to move forward in your faith as a Christian. And what we've done is we've left Christ out of that formula and we've uh, left the scriptures and what the scriptures have taught out of that formula. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth now is what you believe. What you feel is best for you, that has become the new truth. And as far as, as life is concerned... Uh, yes, we accept eternal life, but from that point forward, God, sense, God, God believes that we need to take a sense of responsibility ourselves. So now what we do is we take over our spiritual growth and we say, <clears throat> let's go help people. Let's, let's get back in the action uh, business of the gospel. Let's try to find ways to love our neighbor. Let's do that. There's nothing wrong with those things. It's just it's out of the context in the way Christ said we should do it. And so we've decided that the Scriptures are no longer the authority. And when you do that, anything goes, including uh, philosophies and, and new theologies and, and ideas. And uh, like I said in the conferences, that right now this is the time of year when the, all the conferences are being advertised. And young men from megachurches are going across the country and talking to pastors and congregations and things and telling them all about leadership imagination, how to wonder, how to think about uh, things differently, so that you can make your contribution to the kingdom of God, when in, in reality, they're doing exactly what you said. They're going down the broad path. And... They're not going to be able to end up where they think they're going to end up, and a lot of people are going to be misled, and a lot of people are not going to get the solid foundation that they need to have. And the pastors, for all intents and purposes, have going out, uh, gone out of the shepherding business, the di- discipling business. They're now uh, – these, these conferences that they go to and the activities and the, the money that the church is laying out uh, for programs and all the rest of it, this is costing churches a fortune. And not only that – but the end result is not going to be any different than was the end result with the uh, former church movements by certain pastors who, who went after the church and whatever. We find now that those churches are closed or sold and the pastors are gone and all the rest of it. This is just another version of that same effort and that same desire to grow the church. It's all about numbers. And what do we have here? And if we have happy people who are giving their tithe and are doing we don't need to go deeper. Who needs to have a deeper spiritual relationship with Christ? Uh, you got the church. We have us. We have each other. Why do we need anything else? That's the thinking. James Darnell with us
1: in studio. A look at Saving the Saved, How the Church's Greatest Omission Led to a Post-Christian America. Information, by the way, about the book on the web at savingthesaved.com. That's savingthesaved.com. A brief time out back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues